I want, because it's been so long in the book of Titus, I want to review a little bit here. Um, Paul wrote the book of Titus for his companion companion Titus. And uh, Titus was to visit the island of Crete here. You see it on the bottom right of your screen. It's an island off the coast of of Greece. And it was infamous for its sins. It was infamous for its selfishness. In fact, it was infamous for its... uh, um, uh, Lying and deceitfulness. In fact, the Greek word to lie is the word to kretozo. And you can hear the word creed in there. And Paul, in in chapter 1, verse 5, left Titus there to restore order to the churches that were planted there. And part of his job was to replace corrupt teachers in the churches with godly leaders. And so three things Paul tells Titus that he to do. Chapter 1, verse 5, he is to point God to leadership because the leadership that was in there was not godly, should not be serving there. Secondly, in chapter 2, verse 1, he's to teach. He's to teach how God wants to shape the new humanity, the church of God in Jesus Christ. And then in chapter 3, verse 1, he's to remind them of these things. In other words, there is a continual process here in the life of the church, isn't there? It's not that you and I have just heard something and we're all good from then on. We need to be constantly reminded of it, don't we? Uh, any of you have been, who have been parents know how important it is to keep reminding your children, keep these things as vision of, 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 of the family life in front of them and how they're, how they're to uh, structure, structure their lives in accordance with that. And so it is with God here with His children, to keep reminding them. And so they'll appoint, teach, and remind are three key verbs here. And so Paul is trying to establish, and God is trying to establish, a church that is, first of all, in good order. He says to um, uh, Titus in chapter 1, verse 5, set the things in order. The things that are lacking, things that are broken, heal, replace, fix. And the major um, emphasis there was godly leadership, godly, a, a team of godly pastors in each church there. Secondly, a church with good doctrine, good understanding, good teaching here. That is healthy. And the word used is sound doctrine. And that word sound is, 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 is like the difference between a, a, a piece of wood that you know could uh, stand up to a good solid thump versus something that's starting to rot and fall apart. Sound doctrine. And then thirdly, out of the gospel of Jesus Christ, that God's grace that saves you, then the result needs to be a church that flows the grace of Jesus Christ out with good deeds. That uh, lives are changed. That real action steps are taken to permeate and influence our community for Jesus Christ and influence the church of, of Jesus Christ as well. So Paul's reminding them of these things, that these Cretan believers, while they lived in a culture that was notorious around the Roman Empire for being a sinful culture, even the unbelievers said, don't, don't, don't go to Crete, that's the other side of the tracks, Right? Paul reminded them that though they lived in that or immersed that, they have been saved from that and they can be transformed into a new humanity by the same grace that Jesus demonstrated when he died to redeem them in the first place. And so as new humanity, they could then, and Birch preached this uh, uh, several weeks ago, they could say no to a lifestyle that is inconsistent with God's generous love. They could also say yes to God's rescue message, his salvation message, and transform their communities by participating in the good things in Cretan culture, um, uh, influence their community here, um, uh, and, and rejecting anything corrupt. They could embrace good and godly living and devoting themselves to Jesus and promoting the common good in their communities, their small towns. 
their villages here. And so in the book of Titus, Paul opens the book of Titus by saying that God revealed through Jesus, in chapter 1, verses 1 through 4, just for you to catch us up here. God revealed through Jesus, he is faithful, he is true, and this is a total departure from the typical Cretan culture. Cretan culture worshipped Zeus. He was the patron god of their island. He said they come from that island. And Zeus, like many Greek gods, was kind of a, a half-god here. He, was, he, was, uh, he, had, he had some powers, but like the, the, the Greek gods of mythology, there, he, though they had powers, they were very much like human beings. They were divisive, they were deceitful, they had these vices that went on. And, and Zeus was one of these um, gods that they worshipped. Who His vice was someone who was a manipulator, a deceiver. And unfortunately, we become like we worship, don't we? Um, We become what we behold, someone has put it that way. And so the Cretans were very much like their god, Zeus. And Paul says, no, you have been transformed by the gospel. And so in verses 1 through 4, he tells, chapter 1, he tells Titus, to appoint new leaders who live a life totally different from Cretan culture, the bad things in the Cretan culture, and then to confront, in chapter 1, verses 10 through the end of chapter 1, to confront corrupt leaders who are really showing they're not different. Whose mouths profess something, but in chapter 1 of Titus, and verse 16, he says, they profess that they know God, but in works they deny Him, being abominable or detestable and disobedient to every good work reprobate or worthless. So godly leadership needed to be installed. And so God's program for restoring a church is first of all to install a team of godly leaders. And I've asked that you would pray for that for our particular church here. That God would bring a team together of godly pastors. And then in chapter 2, he talks about how the Cretan household, the families, where the rubber meets the road, in your homes, where you live together, will transform and permeate and influence society. Its members will demonstrate the redemptive power of the gospel when they live daily by God's value system. In their homes, with with husbands and and wives and children, and and your work relationships, bosses and servants, and and the church community, older, discipling, teaching the younger, working on the character qualities that need to be evident in their life of Christian maturity. So that's what he talks about in chapter 2, verses 1 through 10. And then, in verses... 11 through 15 in chapter 3, he talks about the value system. What is all this anchored in? Is he telling people just to kind of pull themselves up by their bootstraps, work a little harder, come on guys, get it together here, do this in your own power? No, he's saying that you do this because of what Jesus has saved you, because of his grace. Not because um, uh, you're just trying to be good moral people. But because you've been rescued out of this, you've been transformed from darkness into light, and now you are to be the children of light and walk as children of the light. So the value system that drives Christian life is based on God's generous grace and love. It is not to earn God's favor, it is not to earn God's mercy, but it is because of God's mercy and His love that it transforms us. And this grace, this love, appeared in a person, the person of Jesus Christ, and And therefore, it should transform daily life. And this new humanity that God creates through the gospel, believers 
The church of Jesus Christ. God's love and grace is powerful and it can produce new people who are empowered by God's very Spirit. Who are faithful to Jesus' teachings in their homes, community, and the world. And this is the vision of the church. This is why God saved you and I. And so that brings us to chapter 3. And in verse 1 and 2, he talks about their public life among uh, in the world, and he says, put them in mind or remind them to be subject or um, under in subjection, um, under authority, to principalities or authorities, rulers and powers, to obey magistrates, to be ready to every good work, to speak evil of no man, to be no brawlers, or uncontentious, uh, but, but, but gentle, showing all meekness or gentleness to all men. He says, this is how you need to live now among the public. And he must have a reason to say this, right? I mean, if this stuff wasn't going on in daily life, or these aren't the things we're tempted by in daily life, then he would have no reason to say it. These are things that you and I face daily, aren't they? Um, our response to authority, uh, our, our, our tendencies to slander other people so that we look better, put other people down, um, our tendency to respond in a harsh way, or a sarcastic way. Um, our tendency to not show gentleness and kindness to people. But then again, he roots it into what Jesus has already done. And he says, remember, you used to be this way. This was your nature. But God reached down and he grabbed you out of that by his grace. And you responded to the gospel. You responded to his work, to his mercy. And not by... A, an attitude of trying to be better and better so that you could earn God's mercy, but because of His mercy, because of His power in changing your heart, then you respond, you become this, this way. And that's what he talks about in chapter 3, verses 3 through 7. And he seems to emphasize five points. First, the very purpose of Christ's death is to purify for Himself a people who would be enthusiastic Chapter 2, verse 14, of good works. And secondly, although these good works are never the basis of our salvation, they are essential evidence of new life. In chapter 3, we'll see in verse 8, and then in verse 14. And thirdly, that all Christians are to be equipped and ready to do good works. And fourthly, those who are in Christian leadership should be very aware, should be very aware of this truth in their own lives. And not just expect this of those who they are ministering to, but this is to be a pattern of their own lives. And all this is in contrast to the false teachers which infiltrate the church, who claim to know God, but by their actions they deny Him, chapter 1, verse 16. And then when you put it all together, it's Titus chapter 2, 9 and 10. That verse champion so um, uh, uh, carefully explained to us that by good works the gospel is adorned and is and it is commended then to unbelievers. It shows how beautiful the gospel is. Is if the gospel doesn't have the power to change us, who cares about that? Right? But it does, and it's beautiful. And so now, we're going to summarize here what he has said in chapter 3, verses 3 through 7. Six essential ingredients of our salvation. There is a need for the gospel because of our sin, and God desires to bring man to him and fellowship with him. 
Because of our need with sin, guilt, and slavery. The source of the gospel is God's gracious, loving kindness. His, his, his kindness to mankind, Paul says. The ground of the gospel is not my own merit. It's not my own record here. The ground of the gospel is another's record, and it's Jesus Christ, shown in God's mercy in the cross. The way that the gospel reaches my heart from God's perspective is by regeneration. It's a big word that simply means to be made alive. To come alive. God takes spiritually dead people and he breathes his breath of the Holy Spirit in them and they become alive to God. Ephesians 2 tells us. The renewing work of the Holy Spirit, which your water baptism is a picture of, isn't it? That's why it's essential for a Christian uh, immerse, immersion in water to, to uh, display that work of the gospel. That's what God has already done in your life. And the evidence here of, our, of, of being changed is a done a diligent practice of good works for God's glory and repentance and faith when we don't. We don't walk in His ways. Getting back in fellowship with God. And what is the goal of all this? It is according to Titus chapter 2, Titus chapter 2 and also Titus chapter 3, the goal of it is an inheritance of eternal life that is far beyond what we can even imagine, Scripture says. So, when you look at what Paul says in Titus chapter 3, verses 3 through 7, he gives a very balanced and a very uh, a deliberate account of our salvation. Because you have all three persons of the Trinity, God the Father, God the Son, engaged in our salvation. Uh, God the Father, in His love, who takes the initiative here, death of God the Son, in whom God's grace and mercy appears, in His person of the Son, and then the work that goes on inside the work of God the Holy Spirit who, re, who rebirths us, makes us born again, and renews us that shows itself now that on the outside in the way we live. And so we've been declared righteous, we've been made alive, we have now have a new life that is supposed to display good works and the power of the Spirit, and we have a future inheritance of eternal life which is ours now one day in a certain sense, but will be fully realized when we leave this world, right? So, so far in Titus chapter 3, Paul's done two things. First, in verses 1 and 2, he's told Titus to remind the Christians to be very conscientious, to remind them that they are dual citizens. They are citizens of the, in this life, this world, in the communities God has placed you, but you also have an eternal citizenship that that citizenship needs to be rooted in. <clears throat> citizenship of heaven. They are to be submissive, obedient, public-spirited, looking for the good of the, the, the common good of the community. And they are to live consistent lives of peace and courtesy and gentleness in verses 1 and 2. That's their calling. Then he's given the doctrine of salvation in verses 3 through 8, where they came from, what God had to do, and what, where that places them. And now he is closing his letter with this kind of cluster, and it might seem like shotgun stuff here, splattered on the wall, this and this and this and that, but it has a common theme here. It has a common theme. It's not just miscellaneous things. What unites them is that these are all requests or instructions for Titus to do something. So kind of like, okay, Titus, um, uh, just remember to do this here. I'm passing this on to you. Don't forget to make these things. And so that's where we find ourselves in verses 8 through 11. Let's look at verse 8. This is a faithful saying, or it is very trustworthy. You can bank on it. And these things I will, these things I want... That you to, for you to affirm constantly 
That they which have believed in God might be careful to maintain good works. These things are good and profitable to men here. Now you notice when he starts off in verse 9, he says, but, but this, okay? So there's a contrast here. So here's the positive. Here's the positive. First of all, what are the churches in Crete to do with the message of the beauty of God's kindness and grace in the gospel? What are they to do? And what is the church of Jesus Christ today to do? And the answer is this. It's on the screen. Invest your glory, your energy, and the glory of the gospel, and the right living that flows out of it. That is, because that, he says, in verse 8, is excellent and profitable. What kind of things in this life can you say are excellent and profitable? Some things, right? Not a whole lot, right? A lot of it is like, Scripture says, the chaff that the wind dries away. It's like the husks. Um, that the wind just catches and it's gone, right? It's like a vapor. It's, it's not much, it's heavy, right? Lasts. And Paul says that if you invest your energy in the gospel, these things that are trustworthy, verse 8, and the right living, the good works, and that flow out of it, that is excellent and profitable. Now, I don't know about you, I want my life to count. You want your life to count? So you want your life to count, you want to invest in things that are excellent and profitable. And the way he says you don't do that, the way he says here, here you would be in error, here you would not be investing in the things that are excellent and profitable, is stressing things that are unnecessary. So, he's saying, do not stress unnecessary controversies. Do not avoid talking about the gospel and how to live it out. He's saying, this is a faithful saying, these things I will that you affirm constantly. That they which have believed in God might be careful. That word might be careful is the idea of you tell the Cretan churches, you tell God's people that they are to take the lead in good works. That leads us to a question for our own uh, church as a whole and us individually here. Where do we put our energy into as a church? If it is not what Paul says here into uh, verse 8, uh, they which have believed in God might be careful to maintain good works, um, affirming constantly the gospel, then you know what? It tells us that we're not doing what is profitable, what really matters. Where do we put our energy into as a church? How about you as an individual? What do you stress? What do you emphasize? What do you put your energy into as an individual? What intrigues you? What do you study or talk about or look to practice? When you get together with others, what dominates your conversation? Is it the latest political or social controversy? The latest controversial article or issue? Or is it the kindness of God that is always in the forefront of your mind and in your conversations and, 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 and the right living that flows out of it as a redeemed new human? More than anything else, Verse 8 tells us we need to put the energy of our thinking, our talk, and our action into the love of the Father, the grace of the Son, and the renewal of new life by the Spirit. In other words, we should be passionate here about what God has done in His mercy for us. And ideas, and brainstorming, and and thinking, and discussions here, and, and actions here should be centered on how to display the kindness of God that He's shown to us, to others. And if you're like me... I began to realize there's a big gap in my life in that. That is not what is on the forefront of mind. That's not what I am passionate all the time about talking about. And about putting into action. 
because this strengthens our church, it impacts our world, it helps us serve our communities, to share the good news of the lost, it builds stronger bridges with the lost, to remind, it helps us remind our brothers and sisters who need to be reminded because of the, the, the pull, the weight of the world, to shift their new identity into things that are eternal. And we are to take the lead. God's people, of all people in this world, are to take the lead in letting our light shine in our community by engaging in it, not hiding from it. He says that in verse 1. To be ready, to be eager is the word, to every good work. He says that again in verse 8. To be careful to take the lead to maintain good works. And that's what the church is to do. To not hide, but to engage. And so we're commanded to be a gospel community that is shaped by the gospel as we are speaking the truth of the gospel that is in Christ, Ephesians 4 tells us, and to love one another in everyday life. In Ephesians 4, we don't have the time to look at it this morning, Ephesians 4 tells us the result of that is that we grow up fuller into the fullness of Jesus Christ and the body of Jesus Christ grows more interconnected, it grows deeper, and it grows wider. That's God's vision for His church. And so that's why he says what he does in verse 8. Invest your energy in the gospel and the right living that flows out of the gospel. But look in verses 9 through 11. Because you, in order to focus on something, you need to cut some things off, right? In order to hone in, some things need to be sharpened and chipped away. In verses 9 through 11, he describes that. He says, but avoid foolish questions and genealogies and contentions and strivings about the law for they are unprofitable and vain. A man that is a heretic or a divisive person after the first and second admonition reject, knowing that he that is such is subverted or perverted, warped, and sinning, being condemned of himself, being self-condemned. So then the other side of this is point two, to and focus your energy away from unnecessary fracturing. What are you saying? What is he saying? I can't look on genealogies, ancestry.com, and find out my relatives. Here, that's not that's not what he's saying here. Um, what he is saying is, th- is 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 three things. First of all, focus your energy away from unnecessary fracturing, fracturing, divisiveness, breaking away. But first of all, shunning foolish questionings and genealogies. That idea of foolish questions is. Questions about even spiritual things that are hypothetical and pointless. They don't accomplish anything. And it's kind of hard to put it, put, you know, give, give you a good example of these, but maybe I'll just throw out a ridiculous explanation. How many angels can dance in the head of a pin? You know, that's what the medieval um, theologians used to argue about. Who cares, right? But what does that matter? Um, have, focus on the things that change your life is what he's saying here. And the genealogies here, what he's referring to probably, is a Jewish interpretation in the Old Testament, because in the, in the, in the list of, of genealogies, family records in the Old Testament, there were all kinds of extra-biblical stories and, and fanciful um, tales uh, and speculation based on family trees that people would really get caught up into. Um, many of them weren't verified. And Paul says... Keep your focus on what matters and is necessary and proper for life, not these tangents. Have you ever met a tangent Christian, an issue Christian? Like this little thing is their thing, right? And it is, it is so far outweighs what is really important, right? Um, they, 
this is what Paul is ta- talking about here. And, and, and then he's talking about someone taking it to another level where it becomes a divisive issue. And Paul says, no, that ought not to be, and deal with it very seriously. The word there for foolish is the word moros. It's where we get the word moronic. It means foolish, stupid, silly. Talking about hypothetical questions that don't matter. and Genealogies of the Old Testament that have been woven in with legends and speculation and tales. Sensational stuff. And you know what? There's a whole category in Christian bookstores about this stuff. Who are the Nephilim in Genesis chapter 6 who walk among us today? What Bible codes and these, these, these Hebrew words in the Bible have the, all these hidden secret meanings? That's baloney, okay? Christians in this congregation should not be focusing on that. That, what you need to focus on is the clearly explained word of God and not the speculations and sensations. Because it is a ploy of the devil to distract you from what really matters. Don't get caught up in the nonsense here. Speculations about crazy theories and scenarios, fluff. Some of us are more curious by nature, aren't we? We think about possibilities and things. Please discipline your mind to follow this text here. Discipline your mind. Ask yourself, what is this going to accomplish? If I go down this path or I think through this, what, is it, what does it really matter? When I, when I stand before the judgment seat of Christ, will he say, you figured it out. <laughs> People for ages haven't figured it out. And you were the one who came to the right conclusion of this nebulous, you know, sensational theory. You get an extra crown. No, you know what? You know what God's saying to us? He's saying, knock it off, right? It's of no value. It's useless. Stick to the clear revelation of God's word. Hey, get that down, right? Let's get that one down. And then live out and bear fruit. Because anything else is empty and it's not what we're to be found doing when Jesus returns. That is not the stuff that he commanded us to be, to be uh, dabbling in here. And, and saying, when he said, occupy and transact my business till he comes. And I'm speaking as someone who has a very curious mind and can get off on all kinds of tangents. And I have to slap myself across the face with this text and say, No! It's a distraction from the evil one. It is cloaked in the disguise of new knowledge and insights that someone hasn't come across yet. And you, for the first time in church history, in 2,000 years, have now found the answer, right? An insight. And all the what-ifs, they do not build the kingdom of God. So shun foolish questions and genealogies. Focus your energy away from that. Because what's going to happen is it's going to fracture your church. Turn away, secondly, from strifes and battles about the law. I'm not sure exactly what he's talking about here. There's different opinions. But I I think uh, maybe what he's talking about here is the bickering and fighting about an unnecessary emphasis. And if we're talking about strivings of the law, the Pharisees might give us an indication of that, right? They had these fences around fences around fences, right? Thinking that they were honoring God by keeping his law, but then they put all these man-made fences around that no one could ever uh, question, right? And Jesus says, no, the whole sum of the law is to love God with all your heart, soul, and mind, and to love your neighbor as yourself. And so the commands of men and making people's applications are wonderful things to the word of God. But listen, people's applications change from generation to generation, don't you guys? Um... Things that someone may have told you to do and was an application of Scripture 
may still be true, but may not still be true. The truth of God's scripture and the understanding of that meaning never changes, right? But the applications and how that's applied is different here um, uh, in, in different generations and cultures. The book of Ephesians is wonderful about this. In our society, we have wrongly put self-expression above the common good of the community. But in the new community of Jesus Christ, He has died so that we are reconciled to God and reconciled to each other. Ephesians 1 verse 10 tells us that the goal of His plan of the gospel in Christ is to bring unity into all things in heaven and earth under Christ. We know that will not ultimately happen until Jesus returns, right? But we have been united by Christ And unity of the church was purchased by his lifeblood. He really makes a big deal about it. And 1 Corinthians says you can have prophecies, you can have this and that. If you don't have love for each other and you put yourself above the life of the the community of the church, it means nothing. It's empty. These other things will pass away. But you know what? Love continues in the eternal community, doesn't it? A community of heaven. It's a community of, 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 of love, putting others' interests above yourself. And so in Ephesians 3.10, he says that by the church, its purpose is to display the wisdom of God to even the unseen spiritual realm, as well as the world. And so in chapter 4, verses 1-3, to Ephesians, he says, we have one faith, one love, one unity, one baptism, one spirit, right? Endeavoring to keep the bond of unity and spirit of peace. This is God's eternal plan, and this is how we uh, express God's wisdom. So this is why, in chapter 3, verse 10 and 11, he says, A man that is a heretic, after the first and second admonition, reject. Notice he's assuming there's confrontation that's going on. It's not tolerated in Christ's community. He says this, He's making this point. The apostle of God's church, Paul, will have nothing to do with factions and divisive people. You, you, you can mark them, can't you? You know who's a divisive person, don't you? And he says there are three stages to dealing with divisive people in the church that probably correspond to Jesus' words in Matthew 18, verse 15 through 17. Three strikes, so to speak, here. And the first two are merciful. The third one is actual mercy is also merciful because it's to show them that no, there is a distinction in the way of life of a believer and the way of life of someone who wants to live for their own agendas. But the, the three uh, stages are this. A first warning. He says the first admonition here. The first warning is to point the error of their actions or doctrine here. The second warning, if we're going to correspond this with Jesus' words in Matthew 18 in confrontation with someone who is this way, is then to take, if they don't heed the first warning, is to take someone else with you. And confront. And the third warning, then, in Jesus' words, is to uh, is to have the church gather and to put that unrepentant person out of the fellowship of the church. Now, the word that is used here, translated heretic, is the word hereticos. It's a word that has to do with divisions. It's a word where we get our idea of separatist. You find the guy who has to separate from everything. You know, if he's really consistent in that, ultimately he has to separate from himself. Haracis, heretic, means a sect, a party, a school of thought. It's applied in the book of Acts to the Sadducees, the Pharisees. And it means someone who is, uh, someone who is factious, not fascist, factious. Like they, they, they have their own little factions here, contentious or divisive. And if it gets to step three, Paul then explains what is behind that. You say, well, Paul, you're pretty judgmental to be able to say that about that person. 
And Paul is saying that the church of Jesus Christ, who has done these things properly, that you can count on someone who is unrepentant. This is what's behind it. And he pulls back the curtain and says, this is what death looks like. This is what darkness looks like. This is what cancer looks like in the church. These are people who are not serious about the gospel. They are serious about themselves. Look what he says. Knowing that he that is such is subverted or perverted. It's a word that's used in the passive sense, meaning it's, it's done to them. They're perverted. They're not serious about the gospel. They're serious about themselves. They are warped. They are twisted out of shape. And this passive voice means they have allowed an outside force to do this to them. Probably the evil one, right? They have turned against God's clear word. Secondly, he says, um, in verse 11, they are sinning. They are sinning. They are prideful. They assume they are wiser than their brothers and sisters. They love controversy. Their hearts are perverted with malice and strife. And they have appointed themselves as the guardians of their wrong understanding of the truth. They are people who are unsubmissive. They are people who are usually very suspicious of everything. They are people who are rebellious. They question everything with a wrong attitude. They complain. They see themselves as the authority in their lives. And they easily launch then into grumbling and gossip and slander. Just count on it. They can't keep it to themselves. And Paul says in Romans 16, you mark a person like that who is divisive. And here he says, confront them once, confront them twice. And he says, a third, don't put it up, don't put up with it. And folks, when you recognize these people in your congregation here, in our church, do not lend a sympathetic ear. You should be a cul-de-sac, not a highway. What I mean by that is this. In a cul-de-sac, everything stops at the cul-de-sac, right? Highway just becomes a path to travel to. Travel through. Are you a highway where gossip just travels through you? Gossip should stop with you. Do people see you as an enabler for their gossip and grumbling? A person that travels through easily? Or do gossipers avoid you? That's a good indicator. Do people always come to you for, with gossip? Why do they do that? Because they know you have a sympathetic ear and you're going to listen? I guarantee, if they sense that you do not have a sympathetic ear, you will not be the first person they seek out with their grumblings and gossip or divisiveness. And if you find yourself frequently approached with gossip, just think carefully about your life. Is it a highway for gossip? Where it runs through you as their path of least resistance? Or are you a cul-de-sac? You say, stop. No. Are you alert? Do you recognize it? Paul says here, you're supposed to give them an admonition. If they don't repent, bring another brother or sister and confront them. If they still do not, then they will need to be brought before the church. If they refuse to repent, removed as a partner in this mission of God for his glory and unity in the gospel until they respond correctly in brokenness and repentance. It's the best thing for them, apparently. God's view. So not only are they warped and in sin, Paul says in verse 11, they are condemned of themselves. They are self-condemned. They are self-condemned by their continuing in their chosen course despite biblical confrontation twice. They would rather persevere in that than persevere in God's grace. And that's dangerous and scary, isn't it? Guard our hearts. So we bring it all together here. Paul has um, refuted false teaching in this letter. He is directly 
uh, uh, um, spoken about men who are are factions, factious men, divisive men at the beginning of his letter in chapter 1, verse 10 through 18 or 19. And now he is bringing it to its conclusion in verses 9 through 11. He has provided sound doctrine in chapter 1, 1 through 4, 2, 11 through 15, 3, 3 through 7 that motivates believers to do good works and make the gospel beautiful to a lost world. And in contrast, he's shown how false teachers with their bad teachings, their wrong emphasis, their wrong way of life, motivate their followers to works that deny the real gospel of Jesus Christ and true knowledge of God, destroy that key ingredient for the power of a church, doctrinal unity and living out the gospel. And when a church is characterized by conflict and divisions, it is displeasing to God and it is ineffective in its mission, isn't it? So to summarize, invest your energy into the gospel. The fruit of the gospel, good works. Lean into it. Study the scriptures. Understand what they are clearly saying. Shrink the factions and disunities that is not the way of Jesus Christ and the apostles. And contrary to life in the gospel. And in doing so, we will glorify God as one voice in our church. As Romans 15 says. And we will show and proclaim the wisdom of God and the power of the gospel to change us to the watching world as God's countercultural new community of grace. Let's pray.